0: Shalom and welcome to the Jewish Yogi podcast with Emily Hertzfeld. The podcast that explores Jewish thought, belief, and practice with yoga, philosophy, values, and practice. Please feel free to reach out on Instagram at the Jewish Yogi or email at the Jewish gmail.com. Nice to meet you and I'm it's so nice to meet you too. So I'm so excited about this. So, welcome to the Jewish Yogi. Today, we are interviewing Danny Antman, who is the author of Wired for God Adventures of a Jewish Yogi. And she's an internationally known energy healer and interfaith minister in Santa Barbara, California. She's been at the forefront of energy medicine and healing since 1992 when she graduated from Barbara Brennan School of Healing. She's a senior teacher at the School for Non Dual Healing and Awakening for over nine years and has led workshops at the Es- Esselen es- Institute, yeah. La Casa de Maria, and the Lionheart Institute for Transpersonal Energy Healing. She's dedicated to helping others progress on their spiritual path. Please visit her at DannyAntman.com. Yeah. So I always like to start with whatever you'd like to share when we talk about Jewish themed yoga and there are Jewish principles and values and there are yoga principles and values. And when you hear those what comes to mind and what would you like to start off with
1: well maybe a little bit about my background i was brought up jewish but very secularly and i would say that two things were true about me i had a very deep connection as a soul to judaism however i also had a very deep reluctance to judaism <laughs> and i think That one part of that was a sense of despair and sadness that was present on a general level in the Jewish community in 19, I was born in 1956. I'm almost 65. So that's very close to the Holocaust and American Jews were trying to be American and the parents moved to the suburbs, wanted a middle class life and were less interested in Judaism than being American, whatever that means. And then of course, the Six Day War broke out and there was this whole thing that we, as Jews, should support Israel. I didn't know why, I had no background <laughs> to, to know why I should support Israel. And I actually didn't learn about the Holocaust till I was maybe in my late teens, not really learned. I had heard, but I didn't really know what had happened to the Jewish people. So, and, and of course the Vietnam War was raging when I was growing up. So talk about a lot of chaos and confusion and not being brought up with a religious background. I just didn't find any compelling reason to study Judaism or get bat mitzvah at 13. And learning about the Holocaust confirmed for me why I always felt sad. But it didn't compel me to study Judaism. However, there was always this implied thing, even though we weren't religious, you have to marry a Jewish man, you don't eat certain foods. But I didn't really have any background in the why of things. And I did marry a Jewish man, somehow that was ingrained enough. And his parents were more observant than mine. So I was exposed more as an adult to the warmth of our tradition and the customs of the tradition in the context of family life. I I didn't have that. And I also started studying yoga with my then husband. And the way we got to study yoga was because we were having marital problems. And we had heard about a workshop at Kripalu Yoga, And there was very little yoga in New York City in those years. I would say there was a place downtown, maybe one or two. There was nothing on the Upper West Side where I lived. So imagine that. Now there's a yoga studio on every corner, right? Yes, yes. Um, So we went to Massachusetts and were introduced to a very austere, vegetarian, monastery-like place. And we were going for a couple's workshop but yoga was part of the everyday practice there. And we learned yoga at Kripalu. And both of us fell in love with yoga, actually. He became a yoga teacher eventually. And I eventually did a yoga teacher training, but I never taught yoga, just so you know that I I never really taught yoga. And it became part of our lives as a way to have A kind of physical, spiritual practice, but again, without any real education into the roots of that. And at the time I was studying energy healing and energy healing, the way I was taught it by Barbara Ann Brennan was rooted in the chakra system. And she was a clairvoyant and would describe and teach us how to experience the chakras, not just study them. And the truth is, we never studied the yogic root of the chakras. So again, my, my introduction was experiential. I learned how to feel chakras. I learned how to work with them as energy centers. And I also learned how they facilitated opening to spiritual awareness or states and how they held all of our emotional and psycho-spiritual blocks. And that was experiential. And an example of that is if somebody put their hand, for instance, on my third chakra, I would feel a lot of my issues in that particular chakra. And it would come up with great emotion and insight and experiences would flash through my mind related to that chakra. But the healing school didn't use yoga per se. And it was only many, many, many years later, I think fast forward, let's see, that was 1988 through 1994. I met my spiritual teacher in 2002. It was about eight years later that I met what I considered to be a genuine yogi. <laughs> so, Even though I had already been, no, that's not true. I have been studying. I appreciate what you're
0: saying. I
1: can appreciate what yeah. you're saying. My yoga teacher was great, actually. She was Indian, and I, I loved her. And actually, I learned a lot about yogic philosophy. So I was already immersed in a yoga teacher training. And I just want to honor that. But he was something else. He was a realized adept. And his name, he has passed, was Swami Chandra Shekharanam Saraswati. And he lived in Rishikesh, India. And he was a lineage holder in, a, in Kundalini science. And that took yoga to this whole other level.: So I think I, I need, probably need to backtrack before I go into more detail and let you ask me a question, because I feel like I just kind of get a, gave a trajectory. but uh, what was the
0: original question? <laughs> the original question, but you know we're open to whatever comes to mind is about the melding of the two. Jewish thought and philosophy and yoga thought and philosophy.
1: Right. So for me, they were quite separate until I met Swamiji, who I I call him Swamiji. So I, you know, over the years, previous to meeting Swamiji, I became interested in the Kabbalah, um, because that was the mystical side of our religion. And again, it was before I had really totally immersed myself more in Judaism. So let's say up until that point, still very secular. And with the advent of studying Kabbalah, again, as a modality for healing, and very experientially, and with a person who had previously studied Zen and yoga and meditation, and had a strong interest in non-dual thought, and his name was Jason Schulman, he's in New Jersey. He had started a school of Kabbalistic healing. So again, I was like thrown into a tradition, but experientially. And the way I learned about the tree of life was to have done healings with the 10 qualities, the sphirot in a way that it was like a deep dive into their qualities, but again, very experientially non-symbolic. And I, I did start reading Jewish texts by rabbis. I read a little bit of Zohar. I read a little bit of Tanya. I read a little bit of, Various teachers, Aria Kaplan is a favorite of mine. I read about the Balshem Tov and the Ari. So I started to read and the texts for me spoke to me. I read in English, not Hebrew, but there was something that I seemed to understand at a very deep level. It wasn't mysterious to me. And it started a lifelong kind of pursuit of learning on the Jewish side. I did visit various rabbis on the Upper West Side of New York. Honestly, I don't remember some of their names, but there were a few rabbis teaching at that time on the Upper West Side. Yoga was always separate from Judaism. Did my yoga practice. Okay. Did the Jewish thing. (laughs) They were, they're kind of two separate things. There's many commonalities. I mean, you could look at the Ten Commandments and you can look at the yamas and niyamas and say, well, they're similar. There's a basic desire to know God in both traditions, although they do it differently. There's a sacred language in both traditions, Sanskrit and Hebrew, right? There's many similarities. But having learned about the chakra system and having learned about the tree of life, I tend not to make them the same because culturally they're very different and the way that they're talked about within their own cultures is actually very different, but the endpoint is the same, which is culminating in the one, the one without the second, I would say, the one without a second. So they culminate in the same place, but culturally they're quite different. But here's what's interesting about Swamiji and what I learned from him almost immediately. He was very interested in all traditions, not just his own Vedic or Hindu tradition. And he was very interested in the inner workings of spirit. And for him, and I would say it's now true for me, he viewed Kundalini Shakti, which is simply defined as God within, the spark of the divine within. It's not defined by him as a weird energy that, you know, is sexual, which is very common misunderstanding. He simply defined it as the light of all lights, the spark of the divine that comes into our being with cons- on, at conception, when the sperm meets the egg, and actually forms our physical body, forms the brain, and carries all our previous tendencies and desires within this spark. It like forms this individual expression of God that we call our personality or identity. Interesting. And yeah, it is interesting. It's not also that different from the Jewish story that God put his finger <laughs> there. And with the breath blew in the individual, individual soul and God consciousness, right, with the breath. So there's some similarities there. But going back to Swamiji, he viewed this inner journey of awakening through what he called kundalini shakti or the divine within, as part of every tradition and called by different names and different manner in every tradition. So in our tradition, the tree of life is like a map of that journey. And it's a map that goes in two directions. It goes from the no thing to the concrete something. And it goes from the manifest world to the no thing. And um, therefore, there's an ascending and descending quality of consciousness in the tree. And it's similar to how Kundalini Shakti works. She rises from the bottom and opens the top, but also divine grace comes in as Kundalini Shakti and settles at the base of the spine. So there's a similar ascending and descending movement. What I did find out from Swamiji almost immediately according to him and what I believe to be true because of certain inner experiences was that I had had a very tragic and painful past life as a Jewish person in the time of the Essenes where there was a lot of political unrest. It was also the time of Jesus, I I believe. And I, for some reason, spoke out against something in the community and was exiled from the Essenes And that whole Jewish community, which was quite austere and quite regimented and very adhered to the to the law of Torah, you know, that that the the law was the way, you know, very rigid in, in that sense. And my soul was furious and hated the, quote, Jewish authorities who expelled me and I died. And there are leftovers of that in my journey in this life. And it came out in two ways, being drawn drawn to Judaism and both repelled. So I've been working that out in this life spiritually, and I feel pretty complete with it. What happened when Swamiji told me that was it touched such a deep part of my soul that I burst into tears, sobbing, because it hit something that was true that I knew, but I didn't know. And he kept giving me yogic practices that were part of his lineage and tradition with Jewish names of God to use as points of meditation. My yogic practice was immediately intertwined with Hebrew words and Hebrew names of God. And at one point when I had gotten advanced enough, like five years into some pretty serious, dedicated practice. He told me that my inner process was a Tree of Life process. And I think what he meant by that was that the way the energies moved in my being as they were going up were following the pattern of the Tree of Life, supervised by Jewish guides, apparently, (laughs) of a very high order. So. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. It's very unusual. And I came to know it was true. I became very drawn to working with Hebrew letters in my personal practice. And I had also been an artist for some years. And I began painting the letters. Through painting the letters, I began to do research about meditation in the Hebrew letters, a particular book uh, translated by Arya Kaplan called The Sefer, Sefer Yetzirah, the book of creation. And I began doing the meditations in the book and drawing the letters, painting the letters. Eventually I created Talit, uh, Talitot. (laughs) And I put in. they were made of silk and I put the Shema on one, I put Shalom on one, I put various Hebrew phrases on the Talit and they were my meditation. I, I was literally just consumed with Hebrew letters for a period of time. And eventually they were meditating me. You know, I I felt the force of the letters within me and they would bring me into very deep states of silence. And this was still at the time when I was in a very deep Kundalini process and Swamiji just encouraged it. So here I had an Indian expert in yoga encouraging me in my Jewish explorations they were never separate, but I, I, and I'm certainly not a scholar in either tradition, but I have read extensively on both sides. You know, I have a very extensive Kabbalistic library. I did get bat at age 56 <laughs> in Santa Barbara. <laughs> and I spent two years studying with my local rabbi, whose name is Arthur, Gro- Rabbi Arthur Gross Schaefer. And I love him. And it was really pleasurable to, you know, find out the meaning of the prayers that I've heard all my life and to find out that the order of a Jewish service is supposed to bring you to deep silence and oneness through the Amidah and then the closing prayers that everything in the service in a Jewish service could be looked at as a meditation. Although unfortunately for many Jews, it's not, (laughs) you know. Where things are just done by road, and it's more a cultural, social thing. You know, becoming Bat Mitzvah was truly a spiritual experience. It was really wonderful, and yet it hasn't made me greatly more observant in the traditional way. I meditate every day, just about, except for the days I don't. But it's uh, it's my practice. <laughs> And I still um, use Jewish phrases for meditation. I've studied Jewish chant with Rabbi Shefa Gold, did a two-year training in Jewish chant. And I absolutely adore Jewish chant, again, because it brings me inward. But communally, you know, in terms of Jewish attendance at a synagogue, uh, not, not as regular. I've done some. I observe the main holidays. I'm not all that observant of, you know, I'm not kosher. I join in Shabbat when I do, and other times I don't. But I always have a day of rest. And, you know, there's always a day of rest. I I just don't do it formally. So it's been an interesting exploration.
0: It was interesting. It's almost like you were reading my mind when you were talking about meditating on the Hebrew letters. And you said it's almost like they meditate you. And... With other meditations that you've done that are not in any way connected to anything Jewish, what do you find about Jewish content meditation, be it about the letters or phrases or what have you? What is your experience when you do things that are Jewishly focused versus whatever else you might be focusing on and do other types of meditations? They both lead to the same place.
1: There's a place in my heart that is just there as a a Jewish soul, you know, so the letters and the Hebrew names of God have a warm and fuzzy feel. (laughs) And yet I've had very profound experiences with Sanskrit mantra and Sanskrit chanting, And I only got to Jewish chant after Sanskrit chanting. So that's kind of interesting. I found Sanskrit chanting first. So I would say at this point, there's almost no difference in the inner experience. They both lead to deep silence for me. And most of my practice right now is sitting in silence. That a lot of the fireworks that I used to experience on the beginning of the spiritual path have calmed down as Kundalini has completed her journey to the top of the head, and things are very quiet in my practices. I still have a yogic practice within the yogi lineage of Swamiji, yogic lineage of Swamiji, and I do that, and it prepares my body to sit in silence. I would say, and I still I say the Shama every day. And I say a Sanskrit prayer every day. So for me, they're just completely intertwined and I don't have any inner conflict about them.
0: Okay. So the fact that they do bring you to the same place and they're very similar. At what point do you, how do you choose between us? I'm in the mood for Sanskrit. I'm in the mood for Hebrew or what
1: is that? It arises. I do both. Okay. I do both. Sometimes I'm called to a particular Hebrew chant because they work on inner process, the way Rabbi Shefa Gold has taught them. Each chant kind of gives an opening of a particular flavor. And she has on, I think it's rabbishefagold.com, she has hundreds of chants in Hebrew and English with their inner meaning. And sometimes I pick one of hers to work with because it has a particular meaning for me on that day. And they're always tied to text. So then it brings me into a little bit of text study.
0: So I seem to go through the back door a lot. <laughs> no, that sounds like a wonderful way to do it. It sounds a very exactly. rich experience. Yeah. A lot to it.
1: I wanted to talk about something that you brought yes. up in, in one of your questions about identity. How would I describe my Jewish identity or my yogic identity? And I think of the spiritual path as a loss of identity. (laughs) And that's why I think I might, they're all the same at this point. They're they're different cultures, different tradition, but there's been a gradual losing of identification for me with either. And I can't say whether that's good or bad. I can tell you when it started. It started when I had a near-death car accident. And- um, sorry glad you made it. Yeah. I made it. I survived, but it was the oddest experience. I found myself outside of my body and looking down at a car wreck and the body, my body was in the car wreck, but my consciousness was above my body. And there was totally clear consciousness, but I had no identification with my name, my profession, my sex, my gender, my I didn't know where I was going, what I was supposed to be doing. There was just joy and peace outside of the body and a sense sense of consciousness, aware, awake consciousness. And that's very similar to what happened later as Kundalini progressed through my system. You become identified with consciousness. And when I came back into my body, I was told by somebody who witnessed the accident that I was out I think I was unconscious for 20 minutes. I had a concussion, it seems. But when I came back in, he asked me what my name, this guy asked me what my name was, where I was going, and I had no answer. I was awake, I was conscious, I had no answer. And then I only had fear when he told me what happened. And then all of a sudden fear was present because I couldn't compute what happened, right? He told me your car has gone off the road. It flipped in the air twice. You landed in a the field. There was no airbag, blah, blah, blah. The car's is totaled. They're coming. There's an ambulance coming. Nothing computed. I, I was in a peaceful, beautiful state. And then I was in fear. And there was still no identity.
0: <laughs> fear was present
1: peace was present. And that experience has stayed with me the rest of my life. Of course, fear can come back in and anxiety can come back in. But there was a month when I felt fearless and unidentified with Danny and this body. And it was very, very liberating. And it enabled me to move to California from New Jersey and completely change my life because I was fearless. <laughs> I I had no voice saying, you can't do this. (laughs) Imagine if all of us had no voice saying, you can't be that, you can't do that. Just
0: no fear. Really interesting experience. It sounds like it would bring a lot of uh, more contentment.
1: It did, but it also brought curiosity and adventuresomeness. And I was very aware of death. I'm still very aware of death, that this life is short and that your life can change on a dime. You know that one minute your body's fine, the next minute your body could not be fine. And we really need to live fully in every moment. It was such a visceral lesson in the preciousness of every moment. And then in my book, in subsequent years, I described the loss of six people that were really close to me, including my parents. Yeah, this awareness of death permeates the preciousness of life, really.
0: And, and he, you yourself going through something right now. And
1: yes. yes. They, they
0: say that also, it, it, it's what it helps define it. Yes. So have something perfect, like the angels. Well, they're only on whatever level because they're perfect. They don't, they can't work on something, struggle with it, and then be able to, I don't want to say conquer it, but go beyond it. But mere mortals who struggle with challenge, right. face right. their fears and whatever, if they can go beyond, then that's such an achievement that it, it as perfect as angels are. They don't have the potential for growth because they're, they're already there. They perfect. struggle. They don't have a struggle. Something has to, so there's something we said they say about the potential. That's I agree. It and where you go. And also, My
1: Kabbalah teacher would say that it's the very brokenness that we are as humans, our imperfection, that are the actual portal to knowing ourselves as already divine. That even within that brokenness, we're divine. And that has been a very big teaching that we don't really have to be perfected to know the divine. But the process of knowing the divine actually perfects us in a funny way.
0: <laughs> and I've read memes that something like, it's the brokenness that's where the light can come through now.
1: Yeah. Leonard Cohen quoted that, but I think he studied Kabbalah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is very deep and profound.
1: And it allows us to both relax and work on ourselves. You know, it's, it's simultaneously two things at once, like a lot of Jewish teachings. They that hold opposites together, because if we know that we could approach God in our imperfection, we can relax. You know, we don't have to be anything more than what we already are to enter in communion with the divine. It's already present. And on the other hand, I think we're always perfecting ourselves in our in our journey, not in some false idol of perfection.
0: Right. But that working is, towards our personal potential, whatever yeah, journey that takes us on.
1: We're always growing spiritually. And I, I don't know if the
0: journey ever ends. No, I don't know if it, I think eventually it does, but I think the journeys are very long and we come back and come back to work on it, work on it, work on it. Right. Yes, indeed.
1: And my, my Swami talked a lot about liberation of the soul that, Like you said, eventually there's a liberation of the soul. And he was convinced we could all attain that, actually, through practice, through devotion, through longing and yearning. Many Jewish teachers do not talk about that. They talk about living the ordinary life with consciousness of the divine, helping people, all the the mitzvot. The one thing that I have found odd is that there's this sense that our prophets reached a state that we can't reach, like Moses of blessed memory or Aaron or, or whoever it is. They were higher than we will ever reach. And I don't believe that. I think everything is attainable by each one of us, that we are all wired for God and that we're all keepers of the light and that we can experience that in our inner being. No experience is too high
0: for each individual to experience. I agree with you. And, I, and if I can add, I think the word individual is important. I think we're all on our own journey. And there's that story, I think it's in the Mishnah, that talks about Rabbi Zuma's Hona, and, you know, he's worried about dying. And like, am I going to be as great as Moshe? Am I going to be as great as Aaron? When he dies, he finally sees God. And God was like, but were you the best Revzuna Zuna? You could be. And... It takes all parts to make the puzzle whole. You know, not everybody has to be a brain surgeon. If we didn't have garbage collectors, our society would be pretty bad also. Right. And that's an important piece of it. And there are all all paths. You know, even like in talking about Judaism, there were 12 tribes. Not everyone were the priests. Even though we were a nation right. made of priests, we were all supposed to be priests ourselves. But, okay, we can't all be at the temple. I'll go be the seafarers and make the money and I'll support you while you save my soul. And we all have our place and it makes it all work.
1: And none of it is linear, like the higher and the lower, none of it's linear, right? And both the yogic and Jewish traditions, there are these wonderful teaching stories about the lowest of the low, the garbage man or the person sweeping the street is actually the illumined saint, right? Yes, yes, yes.
0: There's a Yes. Wasn't there one about the Swami who dressed up like the, or was it, or was it one of the the Hasidic tales? Now I get them switched. Big rabbi like dresses up like the the one who drives the carriage instead. And then they, you know, we see the people treat the guy in the carriage so great, but not the carriage driver so great because they think instead of really plugging in.
1: You know, that's, again, a story of identity. We're we're so identified with our identities. (laughs) I am the carriage driver. I am the high priest. I am the healer, the mother. You you know, we have a list of our identities, but honestly, they're very mutable.
0: (laughs) Yes, they are.
1: None of them are really who we are. None of them are really who we are. One moment you're a patient, another moment you're a doctor. One moment you're a daughter, another moment you're a mother.
0: Or maybe your
1: gender identity has changed. Yes, that's very
0: true. Speaking of past lives, I think, because I do believe in that, I think there are different pieces in, the, in us from that. So we're in other lives where we might have been a different yeah. gender or a different position, which is why sometimes it's not like 100% when we're walking in this body. And there's this whole big continuum because things are echoing for us from other times and other experiences.
1: Right, and we all have male and female within us in terms of our genetics. We all have both qualities within us. I think're it's just separated by one chromosome.
0: Right? That's true. Um, and also a lot a lot of life is experiential as you talk about. so we see it and what do we observe and then what do we internalize beyond the genetics and whatnot as well?
1: right? And in some cultures, you know, the shamans were the ones who dressed in the clothes of the opposite sex. They were the healers and the shamans. And they did that because letting go of identity was part of opening to spirit in certain
0: shamanic traditions. Which is very profound as well, because the ego holds on to that. And that also becomes a big barrier to connecting to the divine and so forth. You spoke about the Kundalini. And in your book, your Swami, as you were saying, all these different names for it, and one of it was Shlina, which comes from the Jewish tradition. And I was wondering if you just speak a little bit more about that, if you had anything to add about that, because it is so powerful.
1: Yeah. You know, I've studied Zohar a bit with Daniel Matt, the current translator of the 20 volumes, 22 volumes. Nice. And first of all, Shekhinah is never mentioned in the Torah, And it only became the divine feminine presence uh, through the Kabbalists of the Middle Ages, right? It started to be something that the Kabbalists talked about as a distinct feminine presence. And the terminology is often used in terms of the divine union of different pairs of sphero in Kabbalah. So the Shekhinah, she wants to unite with Yesod, which is above her in the central column in the Tree of Life. Or she wants to unite with Tiferet, which is above Yesod. So it's a kind of male-female polarity in Kabbalah. And the male and the female are uniting in divine union. And that's on their way to knowing the divine. It happens through these successive unions. Swamiji immediately made this comparison saying that, oh, divine feminine Shekhinah in Judaism, divine feminine Shakti in the yogic terminology, but you won't really find that comparison in any texts on either side. You know what I mean? It's, it's a comparison that he made because he's talking about the divine feminine principle in both traditions and how it's longing to unite with its mate, its male mate. So Shiva with Shakti, Shekhinah with Teferit or Yesod. It's very similar, but you don't find that comparison too often in traditional Jewish Kabbalistic study, just because it's taught a bit differently. But I think they're similar personally in terms of actual experience. And what you're saying
0: that experience, have you experienced kind of
1: feminine as light? Yearning to go upward through the spine, yes. If I call that light shahina, does the light stay the same? Yes. If I call that light shakti, is the light the same? Yes. So light, God, divine feminine presence, by whatever name you would like to call it, is good enough for me. But scholarly, scholars won't go that in that direction. Because shahina came from, was first just presence. The presence that accompanied um, the Jewish people outside of, as they left Egypt with Moses. It was the the pillar of smoke, the pillar of fire. It was the holy presence in exile. It only eventually became known as divine feminine Shehina through the Kabbalists. And now I'm saying I'm associating it with Shakti, but
0: uh, there's not a really a scriptural basis for that. It sounds really interesting and it, when I heard it about it, it sounded like it made sense to me.
1: It makes sense on an experiential level. And the one other thing that's really esoteric and really interesting to me is that about the different risings in Kundalini and Swamiji's lineage is the first place I've ever read or heard about the fact that there could be six different nadis through which Kundalini progresses up through to the top of the head and in those six nadis she also works in different ways they have different qualities and they give the spiritual practitioner different experiences and this is really well described in a book called kundalini vidya which is written by joan harrigan it's available on amazon And she goes into great length and detail about the the lineage's teachings around the risings. I was told I had a particular rising that was common to all the Jewish seekers Swamiji had met. And he had met quite a number. I don't know if it's 100, if it's 50, 25, 30 but he noticed that a lot of his jewish students had this particular rising through the vajra nadi and one characteristic of the vajra nadi is that it doesn't culminate in enlightenment it can't reach the crown the top of the head which is Ketur in the tree of life or bindu in the kundalini system it goes really fast up and it comes down. It goes up and down, but it's outside of the Shishunna. It's outside of the central energy line. And one of the reasons he said he saw this as common to the Jewish people was that the original knowledge needed to divert it into the central column and have it culminate was lost at the time of around the first temple, you know, before the first temple was destroyed. He said there was a lot of corruption in Jewish priesthood, and they purposely withheld that knowledge from some of the initiates at that time, and eventually the knowledge was lost. And he said, I came into this life with a Jewish rising this particular Vajra rising, and that he had the technology, he knew how to have it go down and then come back up again through the central column. And I experienced that on the first weekend I worked with him. I experienced that going down and coming back up. And it was very, very sacred and very, very beautiful and very real. It was as real as concrete. I, I, I knew what was happening. What's interesting about the Jewish tradition, this particular rising is nicknamed the sex rising because it starts in the second chakra and produces a lot of fiery sexual energy, I would say. And that's why Kundalini is sometimes associated with sexual energy. And it produces a great yearning for the divine. There's a lot of longing and yearning and some glimpse experiences of light, and it doesn't culminate in a permanent awakening. And within the Zohar, there's a lot of this yearning of the lover for the beloved. Mm. And it made me wonder if the flavor of this Vajra rising, where the lover's always yearning for the beloved, is almost imprinted on our sacred texts like the Zohar. Like that's the flavor of this Jewish rising and the flavor of the, the Zohar. So I thought that was rather interesting. It's just a hypothesis. Talks about running and returning to the one, running and returning.
0: And that rising and falling is part of the Vajra rising. And like you said about many Jews have it where it goes up and down, but it can't quite reach the top. A couple of questions. One, with what you were saying about the Zohar talks about the longing, the longing, because you can never quite get all the way. Yeah. And is that that's just it too bad, so sad? Or is there something that Jews can maybe just do certain Kundalini practice to go above and beyond or, or that like? I, the kundalini practices I were
1: I was given were very individual to my system.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I don't know about a general Jewish thing. I know the rising has to switch, but I have a possible guess about the tree of life itself. And the more I've worked with it as a healer who uses uh, the tree of life as a kind of map for Kabbalistic healing, um, I think people work out inner stuff through the side columns which are pairs of complementary qualities and the more we can rectify these complementary qualities within ourselves it kind of raises our consciousness and as you go higher in the tree towards the one the qualities get more difficult to hold together If you take gavura and hesed, uh, gavura is justice and judgment and boundary and container. And hesed is loving kindness. And well, let's just say loving kindness for now. Uh, Good and evil actually kind of are paired with gavura and hesed. You know, judgment and kindness, they're very hard to hold together. If you can come to a place of being able to hold those two together in your life and really embody that, you have to ferret, which is compassion and beauty and love. That's a, a very evolved state already. You know, look at how polarized our country has been this year. To be able to stay in equanimity with all the polarized mm. politics is a sign of a very evolved person. And then when you get higher up to Hochma and Bina. You know, you get to even a more subtle and more difficult place to hold opposites. And that's a whole other discussion, which we don't have enough time to go into. But the rabbis of old used to use a meditation that oscillated between Chochmah and Bina to get into the state of prophecy. So they were using the opposites, the
0: complementary qualities to achieve awakened states, you could say. If I can ask you to share a little bit more about the Kabbalistic healing practices, because we don't hear much about that. We hear about Kabbalah and enlightenment, but about the healing aspect of it.
1: I fell in love with Kabbalistic healing uh, as it was taught by Jason Shulman, and I still use it in my healing practice today. And it's a way of looking at all the levels of our soul and all the levels of our physical, emotional, mental, spiritual reality through the qualities of the tree of life and the pairs of complementary sphero. And it changed the way I look at life. So each of the qualities are very relatable. They appear in our life. And when I listen to somebody, I can kind of track where they're working in the tree. And then through a very subtle and nuanced diagnostic process, I'll choose a pair of sphero, let's say hesed and gavura. And I hold one in each hand in terms of their quality, kind of like energy quality. And They combine in my being to be one force. The middle column opens up and people experience a rather profound shift in their being when this is transmitted, and it's transmitted through my hands, but even long distance through intention, like prayer. Wow. So it's pretty interesting. And people, you know, I work with people who have no clue about anything about the tree of life. And they talk to me in the language of the spirit without the Hebrew, you know what I mean? The yes, colon. yes, yes. So they feel it, they actually feel what is happening. And there have been some remarkable shifts for people, it really, it can shift things physically, emotionally, mentally. And I don't feel like I'm fixing anybody. I'm simply holding divine qualities in my being and transmitting
0: them through my hands. So if you're not fixing them, but you're transmitting onto the person, what's going on for the person? Are there changes? Yeah, they're be-
1: being given a transmission of divine qualities, we could say. Each of the 10 Sphere are actually divine names and divine qualities. And you could say that I'm kind of embodying them and that's transmitted in a particular flavor or form for lack of a better word, their attributes. And it acts, the best analogy that Jason Shulman used to use, which I like a lot, is that it acts as if you're changing the soil in which a plant grows, you're giving it more nutrients and more trees, and then your tree can grow in a better way, <laughs> a more balanced and healthy, nutritious food for the that tree. That definitely
0: to q- clarifies it. But yeah. cabalistic healing isn't the only type of healing you do.
1: I still do some energy work uh, with the chakra system. And more and more, I've been functioning as a spiritual guide and mentor for people since I wrote the book and talking to people about spiritual practice and helping them work through a lot of the upheaval in their lives that comes with awakening. Because awakening is not for the faint of heart. Your life will change. There's a loss of identity. Friends change. Your marriage changes. Relationship changes. And your diet changes. I talk to people about all these things and help them manage to integrate spiritual and physical life. They're not separate, but sometimes we need help in the integration process. As our being gets accommodated to being to vastness, to loss of identity, to loss of self, how do we live our ordinary life? And eventually it all gets integrated and it's ordinary again.
0: That's a good point. When you assess people for where they are and what type of work to do with them, what informs you to do more of the Kabbalistic versus the energy versus the coaching or what? How does that do? It's intuitive
1: based on like 30 years of experience of working with people.
0: What is it about somebody that would be like, oh, you know, since they're showing this or underlying it to this, I should do X, Y, and Z with them as uh, an elemental okay. P.
1: Whatever feels most useful in the moment. The chakra healing work I use a lot when somebody can't hold their experience energetically. There's things I can energetically strengthen for them to just help them hold their experience. And the Kabbalistic work tends to change very deep patterns that people express. Uh-huh. I also work a lot with trauma. I've had extensive training in somatic experiencing, which is a very gentle trauma healing modality. And I find in the awakening process, aerial trauma comes up. If you have trauma, it will come up. And that is a talking and sensing process that I do with people, somatic experiencing. So it's like I have a big toolbox and whatever's called for in the moment through talking to someone, I talk, I get a history, what they're struggling with right now. It's just very intuitive. I have a lot of tools in my toolbox. Cool. Awesome. You uh, prepared. And also it's been studying. It's never ending study for me. I've never stopped learning or studying. So as I study new things, new things come in. That's always fun.
0: Well, you said that the Kabbalah was the spiritual aspect of Judaism. And what about the Kundalini? Of all the things of yoga there, what was it about the Kundalini? And are there particular parts of Kabbalah that speak to you more? All of
1: Judaism is spiritual. It's just not
0: presented that way a lot, right? Well said, like, well I said. Know, I like that.
1: The whole service of in a Jewish synagogue, which is rabbinic Judaism, of course, which didn't all, always exist. But it's all spiritual. It all refers to God, right? But how do you experience that? And Kundalini for me was direct experience of God. It enabled me to open to the direct experience of that which has no name. Like, I don't even want to begin to define God because we can't. But I could say I don't believe in God. I know God through my practices that were given to me to help open the Kundalini and help it progress through my system. But at the same time, I could also tell you that at 11 years, years old when i heard the shema for the first time i felt god right and i was in a
0: synagogue didn't know what it
1: meant that too was an experience of the divine
0: what would you want to say to somebody who's whatever their jewish identity is but they're somehow identified jewishly and who's a yogi practitioner what would you like to say to them share it with them give them what to think about
1: For me, yoga is about spiritual awakening. It's not really just about the asana practice. And for me, Judaism should be about spiritual awakening. And it's also about how we serve others. You know, Judaism is very, very uh, service oriented, right? How, How are we in community? How are we to our fellow human beings? And yoga can be about that too, through the tradition of seva so just do whatever enables you to open to that which we can't name again it doesn't matter what you identify with it's more of your intention with your practice to me so what is the deepest intention for your practice yeah people will answer that in different ways it's a great intention to be a good human being and serve people that's a beautiful intention and that's an intention through which you can awaken to the divine
0: right very true And service to others looks an infinite amount of ways. It could be being the garbage collector so that you make a cleaner world for others. It could be the brain surgeon. It could be everything in between. Again, like you said, what's the intention? Are you just doing it for the money? Are you doing it because I am making the world a better place?
1: Right. And I know so many yogis who feel that they are making... world a better place and the same with really you know dedicated jews it's part of our tradition to make the world a better place right to uphold values to uphold ethics and of course
0: everybody falls short sooner or later and that's our learning process our potential for growth yeah so before we finish up anything else you'd like to share add something we didn't touch upon that you'd like to talk about
1: you had asked me about writing the book yes I think my personal struggle has been to integrate the two paths, and it's one of the reasons I wrote the book. And in writing the book, I realized I've just been on two paths, that the two paths don't (laughs) merge like this. I've been on two paths and they culminate in the one. But I was able to reflect on all my different experiences and feel extremely blessed and guided that it was really the intensity of my yearning that led me to this teacher and then that teacher and this teacher and that teacher from yoga to Kabbalah to yoga to bat mitzvah to yoga to Kabbalah to Hebrew chant. (laughs) Looks crazy from the outside, but on the inside, it's just been fine. It's been a progressive learning process and a progressive deepening process. And it's really interesting when you write a spiritual memoir, you kind of wrap up your story and you work out your conflicts with your story and your mistakes. And I don't feel like I need my story anymore. I've kind of wrapped it up. So sometimes I feel like, oh, I have to look at my book to remember my story. (laughs) I'm very attached to it. So it's an interesting process. I think everyone should write a memoir because you have to come to peace with your life. The good, the mistakes, the wonderful parts, loss, grief, death, lovers, divorce, marriage, all that stuff.
0: Once upon a time, I was a social worker and we always say that you are who you are because of everything you've ever done and experienced. And so don't regret whatever mistakes you think you might have made. They're lessons to be learned. They weren't a mistake. If you were able to glean something out of it and take a better step forward, that's where that reflection comes in. And one way to do, one, a great way to do that is in writing a memoir. It's really great.
1: Actually, it took three years to write. I had to go back into the situations as if they were still alive to write about them as if they were still happening right now. Because I wrote it like a novel, even though it's a memoir. And to revisit those places brought me to tears many times. Mm.
0: And you're very brave to share with the world. I mean, everybody has access to it. It's not even just like, you know, you're writing your own little blog and whoever you decide to share the link with gets access. Yeah, it's
1: very, very vulnerable. I was very nervous about sharing it. And
0: it's been positive. What was the actual impetus to write it? You say, you know what, I should get my story out.
1: It was gratitude to both the Jewish lineage and to Swamiji. And by the Jewish lineage, I mean the guides that have been with me on the Jewish side. I have Jewish guides. They wear black the black hats <laughs> shocker i see them and i have yoga guides and it was a deep gratitude for the progress i've made in this lifetime on the spiritual path and i wanted to tell people that it's possible for everybody to make that kind of progress That so you just need a lot of dedication and intensity and desire longing everybody yeah
0: So you said that you were on two paths and they didn't always converge, which, so when, what, have there been challenges being on two separate paths that wound up not converging or what's kept it harmonious or being able to separate out and just be here and there? You know, I have my work friends, I have my school friends or whatever, but sometimes you, they become all friends together and sometimes they don't and that's okay too. Or sometimes they don't get along at all. So what has that been like? When has it particularly worked? When has there ever been conflicts or whatever? I
1: personally haven't experienced any complex other than if I were to be with the Orthodox of either tradition, there's a kind of rigidity there, you know, in, in, on the Orthodox sides of both traditions. But for me, it, it's looked like this. I was in Rishikesh, India with Swamiji, and he saw the Chabad rabbi of Rishikesh. He went up to him and said, shalom. And they had a lovely conversation. And then the next thing I knew, Swamiji sent me in his, but with his personal driver to Shabbat at the Chabad Rabbi's house in Rishikesh. And the, Swamiji's driver waited for me for two hours and then took me back to Swamiji. And, you know, that's the epitome of no conflict. And then the next day, Swamiji and I and four other people went to the Chabad Rabbi's Beit Chabad, and we sat and talked with the rabbi and had a lovely conversation, really. That's a great story. That's my interfaith story. (laughs) And that's how I would like it to be, basically. You know, I personally don't feel a conflict. But then I'm not orthodox, right? I'm not orthodox in either tradition.
0: Yes, although I assume there could still be some... I don't know, where just things don't sync up or link up, regardless of whatever level of observance you need in either to side th- of the fence.
1: Yeah, I don't need them to sync up. They can each be as they are, really. I don't need any sync up. And they're both present in this soul, in me. So, you know, you had asked about idols. I don't think the average Hindu thinks that the stone statue is God. The average <laughs> Hindu goes through that image, through the qualities to the essence of God as a quality, in that quality the essence of Krishna, the essence of Vishnu, you know, it's a quality in the same way that there are attributes in the tree of life. I don't really believe the average Hindu thinks that the stone is that, but you could also say God is in the stone, right? I mean, you could say God is everywhere and nowhere. God exactly. Is like all of that. So I, I'm not fixated on, God forbid, I look at an idol. Oh my God. I don't worship an idol. I worship the divine within and without.
0: Uh, one more question. So you spoke about the Kabbalah in the Jude- Jewish world. You spoke about the Kundalini in the yogic world. Are there any other aspects of either of those worlds that speak to you or that are particularly not your thing or... I still resonate
1: deeply with the Hebrew letters as a practice. So at the same time, you know, I I mean, I've attended many Torah studies, but I'm not somebody that is every day reading Torah the way somebody who's very religious will. But I love studying Torah when I do study Torah. But so I'm not drawn to, you know, the religious side of either, just like I'm never going to become a religious Hindu, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not a Brahmin, I'm not, Uh, you know religious really on either side I'm a devotee of God you know that's that's all I can say I love God more I remember God I love God I remember God in the waking and the sleeping that's that's enough
0: for me (laughs) it sounds like it's working out really well for you
1: it works well for me and that's that's true of either tradition remember God period (laughs) know know that you are that you know Anything else you want
0: to finish up with as we finish up?
1: <laughs> My website, again, is dannyantman.com. I do private sessions with people. And I really feel like I'm called to just help people on the spiritual path with all the tools that I have and all, all the years of practice experience. It's been about 30 years, I think, since I started, almost 30 years since I started Barbara Brennan's, which was a big opening to spirituality also, actually. But it's really been nice to speak to you.
0: Thank you so much for your time and information. This has been really wonderful. And hopefully I can meet with you one day in person. If I ever get out to California, if you're over in New York, please come to New York. Please bring me me up.